Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. No middle name this time, Sid. I want to get straight into business. <laughs> Let's get straight to it. Okay. Are you going to get Usually, straight to it? you're oh. the business. Well, I'm I am the business. I know. If we were a mullet <laughs> as a couple. Uh-huh. I'd be the front. You'd be the front and I'd be the back. Right. For sure. Uh, so I would be what gets us hired. And you'd right. be what gets us Fired. Exactly. Right. Exactamundo. (laughs) That's fair. So, uh, Justin, occasionally it's nice to cover a topic that a lot of people are talking about Mm -hmm. or hearing about Um, right now. A lot of people probably watched Jimmy Kimmel's um, talk, speech, Speech, monologue, monologue, story, story story, uh, that he told on either by either because you watch a show or because you saw it on facebook like me because it was viral as they say yes yes in this kind of internet slang is that what that web professionals people like me in web media we say it also has to it also has to do with an infectious disease that is a virus like that term oh well that's yeah that's Mm -hmm. not my best choice of words then so Mm -hmm. sorry about that everyone Uh, but if you if you haven't seen it, then uh, Jimmy Kimmel was telling the story, the very the very touching, moving story of uh, the birth of his child who uh, had a congenital heart disease, heart defect, excuse me, mm-hmm. congenital heart defect called Tetralogy of Fallot. And uh, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with that. What uh, that is, I what that I means. I wasn't, certainly. So uh, I thought, and so did Chantel, one of our listeners who wrote in and suggested this topic. Chantel thought that this would be an interesting thing maybe to talk about. For something that is so um, uh, serious, it's certainly a fanciful name, isn't it? Tetralogy of Fallot? It seems very fanciful to me. I, it, if you break it down what it means, it does. it's not. Do you, I mean, do you know Tetralogy, what it's referencing? Look in my eyes, Sydney. Look look into our 11 plus years together. You don't know. Do you think I know what it's <laughs> referencing, Sydney? Okay. Tetra is five, right? Four. <laughs> oh, this is off to a great start. Excellent work, everyone. Uh, the the tetralogy references for the four components of it, and Fallot is the person who called it a tetralogy. So mm-hmm. there you go. That's the last name, Dr. Fallot. Got it. Are you spoiling the story for me right no, now? Okay. No. So, because the first thing I want to tell you is what it is. Uh, as, as if you've watched the video, you may be aware it is a, it's a congenital heart defect, meaning it is something that, it, that you are born with that is a malformation of the heart. It doesn't, it doesn't come together the way that it traditionally does. 
while you were in utero. It, it is a complex congenital heart defect, and it occurs in about 1 in 2,000 newborns. Do you mean complex to mean something clinical or like? Yeah, it's as opposed to, there are, there are some simple heart defects. So some people will say, uh, you may have heard this before, I have a hole in my heart. And there's a little teeny hole in between two of the chambers Mm -hmm. that may not necessarily ever be clinically significant, may just have been found and is there and may not do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one's more complex. Okay. Uh, And it is the most common of the complex heart defects. About 10% of congenital heart defects are Tetralogy of Fallot. Mm. Fairly common. Um, I have seen it. It's common enough that me and my, I'm still, I'm still pretty young. My few years of practice. Yeah. I've seen it. So it invo- the four things it involves, first of all, is a ventricular septal defect. Now, to, to describe these things, just picture this. Okay. The heart has four chambers, yes. right? We're aware of that. Yep. There's two bottom ones, mm. the ventricles, mm-hmm. and two top ones. The aorta. Nope, atria. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm doing my best here. The, uh, so excited. And the, the basic way the heart works. Do you know how the heart works? Do you know how what it does? Um, yeah, it's like a big pump. Uh-huh. And the bad blood goes in and the good blood comes out. Okay, where does okay, bit. so what's the bad blood? Uh blood that is not oxygenated. Right. And it goes into the heart. Which side? The right. Yeah. Crushed it. And it from the right side of the heart it goes to the left. Lungs. <laughs> And from the lungs, it goes back to the heart. The heart. The, the left. The left side. The left side. Of the heart. Right. Okay. And from the left side of the heart, it gets pumped out through the whole body through the aorta. By the way. Perfect. Yeah. I knew that was up in the mix. So a ventrip a ventricular septal defect means that there is a a hole in between the two ventricles. Mm-hmm. So the two ventricles are supposed to be separate. They have a septum between them. Separation, okay. a wall between them. And in this, the first defect is there's a hole there. So does that mean the the old blood can mix with the new blood? Yes. Okay. Uh, then the second part is hypertrophy of the right ventricle. What that means is that the right ventricle gets gets big and thick. And it's not really supposed to be. The left ventricle is thicker normally because it's got to pump blood to the whole body, right? Well, the right side just has to pump blood into the lungs. Mm-hmm. So it's not as hard. So in this case, the right ventricle is very big and thick. Okay. Because it's been working really hard to try to pump blood through the next defect, which is a which is pulmonary stenosis. So the pulmonary artery that comes out of the right side of the heart, mm-hmm. just like the aorta does the left side, the pulmonary artery is tight. It's too tight in this in this condition. Mm. So here's this ventricle trying to pump blood through it, and this is really tight, so the ventricle gets all big and beefy trying to pump blood through it. Okay. That makes sense? Yep. And then the last part is what we call an overriding aorta, meaning that the aorta now is actually getting blood from both ventricles. It's just supposed to get it from the left, but instead it's like crossing over and getting blood from the right side too. And all this is really hard. I know this is hard when you're trying to visualize it. If you look at a picture of the heart, and this is really easy, you can Google a picture of Tetralogy of Flow and that can kind of help describe it. But if you if you imagine that what happened to the embryo, what happened developmentally that caused this is that the division between the pulmonary artery and the and the uh, aorta just didn't happen in the right place. Okay. So it moved too far over, making this tiny little pulmonary branch, making this big, large aorta, this hole between the septums. And the result is that just like you said, 
you're not getting enough oxygenated blood and you're getting blood that isn't properly oxygenated pumped out through the body and there's blood being shunted from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart. So mm-hmm. it's instead of going through the lungs, Cutting it's just being line, shunted over back and pumped back out into the body. We remember, by the way, we learned a mnemonic for this in med school to remember the four different parts of Tetralogy of Flow, and it was IHOP. I just thought I'd share that. Oh. <laughs> I just remember it that way, hmm. IHOP. Uh, so, like I said, this causes a right-to-left shunt, all this unoxygenated What's blood. What's IHOP stand for? IHOP, it stands for the interventricular septal defect, hypertrophy of the right ventricle, overriding aorta, and then um, pulmonary stenosis. <laughs> just And it's just that easy. And it's just that and easy. And now you at home can remember that entire sequence, thanks to the acronym <laughs> IHOP. <laughs> That I remember it. Perfect. So, uh, so all this blood that that is not oxygen rich is being sent through the aorta uh, because it can't get through that pulmonic valve, and as a result, you're not getting enough oxygen to your body, and you become cyanotic. So you don't have enough oxygen. You're hypoxic. You know, you don't have enough oxygen. Okay. As a result, what will this look like? Well, babies can have a bluish tint, especially around their mouth. They can actually look kind of blue because they're not they're deprived of oxygen. Right. Um, which is one of the things Jimmy Kimmel mentioned. Uh, you may hear a murmur. A heart murmur is just the sound of blood moving through a valve, by the way. Okay. You're um, not, the murmur is the sound. Yeah. We're not supposed to hear the blood as it moves through the valve. We just kind of hear the valves uh, opening and closing. If you can hear the blood move through the valve, it's called a murmur. That's I always thought it was a hole in the heart. No. Okay, no. bad job. Sorry. You could have a hole in your heart, but that's not what it is. Uh, these babies might have difficulty doing things like breastfeeding, for instance, because they tire out really easily while they're doing it. So they mm-hmm. might turn blue or even pass out. They can have these things that are called tet spells where they do exactly that. They might cry or even when they're having a bowel movement, they might turn blue and pass out. Tet? Tet, tet. tetralogy. Tet oh, spells. Tet. So I got it. Yeah. It can also cause something called clubbing. It's not just seen in this particular disorder. Anything that results in hypoxia, so a lot of lung diseases, or lack of oxygen, can result in clubbing, which is this bulbous enlargement of the fingertips. That's that's pretty, I mean, you would, you would notice right away. That's a really old sign, by the way. It's maybe the oldest sign in medicine. Wow, really? It, it, they used to be called Hippocratic fingers because Hippocrates talked about them too. Huh. Um, they're not just in Tetralogy of Fallot, but that is one thing you can see them in. Um, so like I said, the whole thing has to do with early on in development, the, the separation between the aorta and the pulmonary vessel do not form in the right place. Um, all of this leads to, like I said, the, the enlarged right ventricle that, that isn't pumping or that's trying to pump through this tight vessel. Mm-hmm. And it can be related to certain genetic mutations. Um, there are certain syndromes. Uh, DeGeorge syndrome is one. Down syndrome can be related to this. Um, if mom gets rubella while she's pregnant, this can cause tetralogy of flow. Would tetralogy of flow cause those things or would they be an offshoot of those? They would things? be. A, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if you have somebody who has Down syndrome or DeGeorge syndrome or mom had congenital rubella, um, advanced maternal age, or um, drug or alcohol abuse, any of these things, you have a higher likelihood of tetralogy of flow. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you just see just it. just happens. Yeah. Uh, as, uh, now, as complex as all of this sounds, because it does, we have known about tetralogy of flow for over 300 years. We figured this out a long time ago. Wow. In 1673, the Danish autonomist, anatomist Steno wrote the first description of tetralogy of flow. 
It was obviously based on an autopsy. And he noted all of the abnormal findings. And he basically said, I wouldn't even attempt to tell you why this happened. Which I- <laughs> Listen, listen, you're going to hear a lot of people around my time period try to <laughs> feed you a load of bull crap that they know what's happening. And I'm here to tell you, listen, his story uh, ends of the future. <laughs> You are not going to look back and laugh at me, not at Steno. I'm just telling you. I'm telling you, I don't know. Flat out. I got, here it is. I got no clue what's going on here. But he did He did say this. Uh, the baby was noted to have what is called a hair lip, what was colloquially called a hair lip. What's the technical then? term for that? Like a cleft. Oh, cleft palate. A cleft lip. Cleft lip, okay. But the baby was noted to have what they were calling a hair lip. And the mom had said, I think this is probably because I was really craving rabbit stew while I was pregnant and I ate a lot of it. Mm. And Stina was like, now that sounds dead on. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely that's why that happened. And this is why I'm not (laughs) guessing about what is actually causing it. And this idea, just on a side note, and I think we may have mentioned this briefly before, but this particular idea that things that mom did um, saw encountered thought about emotions that or that that the pregnant uh, person had during the pregnancy would have these kinds of effects on the baby this was widespread and even some of the you know way ahead of their time luminaries of you know congenital heart defects and then other congenital issues kind of had this concept it's that extremely pervasive idea even in the modern age right that you have you hear uh, about women being told they shouldn't go see scary movies mm-hmm. like why they're pregnant because they you know could have an effect on the baby exactly or frightening and, things i should yeah say. and well and this is that's exactly what they used to they used to tell women is that you know if uh if you're distressed in any way if you're putting any undue emotional or physical stress it's like hearing about something upsetting reading a very thrilling book you shouldn't read anything too exciting or thrilling uh don't see a scary movie don't even think sad thoughts uh pregnant people were advised to basically like stay positive stay away from anything intense just be really cheerful all the time (laughs) rest rest a lot and if you uh, except for housework which is always great exercise for pregnancy so pregnant Pregnant people were invi- were devised to do lots of housework. Yeah. That's very convenient. Yeah. Yeah. That's the work that's best for you, we found. Yeah, just uh, is, uh, keep doing the dishes it. and sweeping the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1777, uh, Dr. Sandifert wrote a case report of uh, what he called a blue boy who had what he described as sinking spells. And uh, upon autopsy was found to have these similar findings that we've already talked about, the tetralogy findings. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, there was a Dr. Hunter who wrote of a case of a boy who lived to the age of 13 with the same defect. He had the same sorts of spells, these what they would call sinking spells, basically just passing out, Mm -hmm. just becoming hypoxic and passing out, especially with exertion. So doing something stressful or demanding. But he also seemed to have some growth issues as well. And he even, Dr. Hunter even theorized that maybe the lack of pulmonary blood flow, this tight pulmonic valve, maybe this has something to do with it um, and why you don't have proper growth and stuff was way ahead of its time. The idea that this has anything to do with anything. I mean, mm-hmm. he, proposing this right now, this seems really obvious, but proposing this at the time was kind of brilliant. Yeah. Uh, he also advised that while he again he didn't know what caused it or what to do about it at all uh, definitely don't do any of the popular cures of the day like bleeding or purging or blistering or giving caustic agents agents or anything like that so that was good that's good he's on point 
Good job, Dr. Hunter. In, in general, in many of these cases, the patients didn't live very long lives. Um, if they made it out of infanthood, we have a lot of these, you know, like children and teenagers, and that was about as long as anybody was expected to survive with this sure. defect. Uh, and, and they were weak and sickly throughout their lives. They were not able to, you know, go to school or of course, have yeah. a job or get married or have kids or any of those kinds of things. Uh, so what kind of advances did we start to make? So this story gets a little happier. In the 1850s, the stethoscope was still new and exciting, and Dr. Peacock used it to correlate various murmurs with different defects that caused them, including being able to recognize a murmur that was associated with Tetralogy of Fallot. And I bet people who had them then all had, like, cool moves that they did with them, like, really getting showy with their stethoscopes. Like swinging right? around. Swinging around. Oh, no problem. I can listen to your heart with my super hearing. <laughs> Like wrapping around her neck and swinging around yeah, like a swing hula hoop. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. <laughs> Very hip look. I do that now. Is that good? Yeah, that's excellent. That's, so that's a great way to inspire confidence in your patients. <laughs> that give me sure. lots of friends. In the 1880s, we finally see the the Dr. Fallot of, of, of renown, Dr. Fallot. Who publishes his article where he talks? He has he has actually encountered numerous cases now of the tetralogy, and he writes up all these different studies and what happened to them and their clinical findings and upon autopsy and all this stuff. And he's the first one who dubs it the tetralogy, who actually says like, if you find these four things, they go together. This is indicative of this disorder. We know what this is. It's called the tetralogy. And everybody was like. Of fellow, I guess. Of fellow. And he's like, well, I'm not crazy about it, <laughs> but so this is my, just want to check my legacy. Okay, great. All Are right, you good. kidding me? No way. He was like, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, of course. Well, you took the words right out well, of my mouth. Well, I mean, I don't mean to brag. If but, you insist. But I guess, I guess, I I guess it kind of, of is my tetralogy. Why so, not fellow's tetralogy? I don't know. That's weird. It's usually that's usually the structure that you yeah. say, right? But it sounds good. Tetralogy it, of flow. It has a good flow to it for sure. Yeah. It's abbreviated well. I have TOF all through my documents. Abbreviated well as TOF. Tetralogy of flow. In 1936, Mond Abbott, who is a famous Canadian physician, and which is really cool to talk about. You're 1936. Maud Abbott, who was female, was a famous Canadian physician, expert on congenital heart disease. Um, who published the Atlas of Congenital Cardiac Disease, which was the Bible of congenital cardiac disease, um, recognized in its time as one of the finest works anybody put together. She actually um, ended up pursuing her course of study in pathology and, and studying congenital heart disease and going down this road because she was denied the other uh, internships, the other paths in medicine she wanted to take. Hmm. Because we're gender. Uh, but Well, I guess that time, though, sexism <laughs> worked out great for everybody. <laughs> I guess this one goes to sexism, right? Uh, dude, I'm, I guess it worked out pretty good that time. <laughs> Maybe some of us are just, we're just going to succeed no matter how hard well, you, the man, know. try to hold us down. Fair enough. Uh, she po so in it were drawings, clinical descriptions, EKG findings, chest x-ray findings. The heart looks uh, boot-like on a chest x-ray if you have tetralogy of flow. Oh, odd. Uh, and, and pathology and all this together uh, for tetralogy of flow. And this is really important because you think about we're not we're still not at a time where we can do what we would do now, which is an echo, the echocardiogram, which is like an ultrasound of the heart, which can show us all this stuff. We weren't doing all that yet. So any way you could diagnose it was a right. pretty 
pretty good idea. Well, we diagnosed it, but I want to fix it, Sid. Well, I'm going to, we're going to, I'm not going to do anything. Other smart people who can do surgery are going to do something about it. But first, why don't we head to the billing department? Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. You were going to uh, be a conduit for history as it fixed the tetralogy. Of right. Flow. I'm going I'm to tell you about the. This is the good part. So... The first, the first, the beginning of this story actually starts with a, succe- a successful surgery to fix something else, a different congenital heart defect called a patent ductus arteriosus in ni- in, that happened in 1938. Now, I really, I wish that, the, you know, I love podcasting, but this is an episode where if this were a visual medium, it would be, it would be helpful. Mm-hmm. So 
there is a something called the ductus arteriosus that you ha- that you have when you are a fetus. It's a connection. It's a vessel that connects the aorta and the pulmonic vessel, and it is supposed to exist in the developing fetus, okay. and then it goes away because we don't need it anymore. In our adult life. It, the reason is because it's in the fetus, it's shunting blood back to the aorta and away from the pulmonary vessel because it doesn't need to pump blood through those fluid filled, you know, amniotic fluid filled lungs. Right. But then after we're born, we need blood to be pumped through our no longer fluid filled lungs. Okay. Correct. So this this closes off itself. That's part of the process. It closes off, just becomes a ligament, a remnant that's left there. Now, this doesn't always happen. Sometimes things go wrong. Sure. And so sometimes this little connection between these two vessels is left open. It causes a machine-like murmur. Hmm. What's that mean? Sounds like machinery. Oh. Like a grinding machinery-like wow, okay. murmur, if you hear it. Anyway, it so surgeons were trying to figure out how can we close this thing? We need to know how to close this thing because it shouldn't still be open about a week after birth. It, you know, at the latest it closes. It shouldn't be open after that. We need to figure out how to close it. So in 1938, they figured out how to just ligate it and close it. And this was a big success because we hadn't been doing surgeries on hearts, especially baby hearts. So... This was, you know, a huge deal. So because they fixed that, this inspired somebody. So this is Dr. Helen Tossig, who was working in the cardiology clinic at Johns Hopkins, who was a brilliant, maybe the most known pediatric cardiologist in history. Hmm. Definitely one of the most known. So she began to wonder about a lot of the children she was seeing in her clinic with congenital heart defects and whether there would be some surgery that might help them as well. Because it seemed like the only approach to this, it's got to be a surgical solution. There has to be surgery here, right? Um, She also, by the way, had worked there for some time because she was denied a spot in the medical internship she wanted because they would only allow one woman on the house staff at any given time. And she was beaten out for the spot by two points. By another woman. Uh, So anyway, she devoted her life to this cardiology clinic and to these children. And it was a wonderful thing that she did because she started to ask the question, if we can close a ductus, that little that little connecting vessel in the heart, if we can close it. Could we not build one? Like a like construct. Okay. Could we not construct a duct? We can close a duct. Could we not construct a duct? Construct a duct is more fun to say certainly we should be able to (laughs) she actually went to dr gross who was the doctor who had done this procedure in 1938 the surgeon who had done it she went to him and said it's just an unfortunate name for a doctor dr gross dr gross is rough (laughs) that's a rough one she went to dr gross and he was a surgeon yeah oh man oh dr gross (laughs) my heart goes out to you my friend that's that's a tough butt she went to dr gross who had just done this this successful procedure and said hey you got to work really clean. That's the thing. <laughs> if people come into the operating table and they're like, oh, man, there's guts everywhere. They're going to be like, not just the name. And you're like, I get it. I've heard it my entire life. Okay. I'm a messy guy. <laughs> it has nothing to do with my name. I'm just saying you got to work really clean. That's true. I'm done talking about Dr. <laughs> Dr. Gross. Dr. Gross, you're done with his name. Yeah. Well, Hi, I'll be looking in your nose today. My name is Dr. Boogers. <laughs> I'll be uh, your ENT. You're, you're not going to be done because she went to Dr. Gross and said, hey, you knew you figured out how to do this. And it's amazing. Do you think you could do 
the opposite. Do you think you could build a duct? And he said, yeah, definitely. Like, for sure. No problem. I could. I'm not going to. Not really feeling that right now. Everybody's super excited about how I closed that other duct. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where the heat is. I'm not feeling. Sure. I'm not picking up what you're putting down. Right. There's no heat behind (laughs) making ducts. So so he said no. So she went back to Johns Hopkins and she bided her time because she knew that another surgeon, Dr. Alfred Blaylock, along with his assistant, Vivian Thomas, were coming to work there. And she thought, this is a guy that I'm going to talk into the surgery because I know the surgery means I know this is going to mean something. So she told him all of her observations on congenital heart defects and what she'd seen and why she thinks that this might work. So this was her theory on constructing a duct. Okay. She noticed that the worst symptoms started about a week after birth. Mm-hmm. When that thing I told you about, that ductus arteriosus typically had closed so what she was thinking was that that was allowing some of the blood to go back here all this blood is being shunted to the body and not making it through the lungs Mm. this open little this open little tunnel was like a back channel it Mm. was allowing blood to go back through the lungs yeah i I, I understand yeah so if it stayed open maybe we could keep allowing blood to go back through the lungs and less you get more oxygen in the blood and you get more Better. oxygenated people. Right. Good. I mean, you can Which stop at good. more oxygen in the blood. We, right. That's the goal. Here. Which is good. Uh, this wouldn't fix the problem, but mm, kind of palliate the problem somewhat. So make things better. Thank you. Yeah. So she, she, you know, pulled all this together and presented him with all this information. And uh, he said, you know what? This sounds reasonable. I'm going to have to test out your theory for a while. So there, he attempted it a lot on some animal models. We won't go into detail there. Thank you. Yeah. And and after two years, he decided, you know what? If you think, I think I can do this surgery. If you think this surgery can work, let's go for it. All right. So in 1944, they started doing the procedure to connect the subclavian artery, which arises from the aorta, to the pulmonary artery. So not not exactly replicating the natural ductus arteriosus, but, but inspired by okay. a similar concept. So they started doing these procedures and they worked. So imagine with me, if you will, the moment. It's 1947 and these two doctors, Dr. Blaylock and Dr. Tosig, are giving a lecture in the, the big the big giant hall at the British Medical Association in London. And they're talking about the procedure and they're showing diagrams and they're going through the intricacies of the surgery and how like with each procedure, they altered it just a little to make it a little better and why the results got better with each one and all this stuff. They're telling the story. And then at the at the climax of the story, a spotlight appears on this gorgeous little two and a half year old curly hair, pink cheeks, looks healthy as can be. And they said, and here is a surgery we did last week. Mm. And here stands this healthy baby girl that, you know, would never have been, it would never have been this healthy to just be here with us today. And a week ago, we did the surgery on her. Sense of drama is so important when you're presenting this stuff. You're going to get people hyped up. That's that's very good. I I, I don't usually. Let, do they fly her in from like the, um, put her on wires and just like fly her in? some shoots of sparklers off stuff like that <laughs> she actually in one of the articles i read was described as cherubic 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 uh so the kids did oxygenate better they had less uh they had you know less problems with 
turning blue and passing out and all that. And they could play. And this sounds like a dumb thing to say, but these families had kids who could go play again, Hmm. who could run around outside, who could play games, who weren't stuck on the couch all day. And the medical community just was on fire. So, And that's before TV. So it really was sad back then, <laughs> if you think about it. So by the 1950s. I can understand why you're getting teary-eyed because like, and what did they watch? Their that's kids what could I'm, play. And, that, and, and not sit on the couch and not watch any TV. Some so. of these kids were like 11 years old. And for the first time in their life, they're able to run around and play. 11 years of not watching TV. I mean, can you think about it? <laughs> so by the 1950s. Uh, different procedures were tried and there actually were some open heart procedures done. You know, it took us a while to get to the point, obviously anesthesia was a big part of this too, to get to the point where we could um, open people up and fix problems, sure, you yeah. know, more m- for longer periods of time, more advanced problems. And they eventually figured out how to repair the defects, closing the hole and um, opening up the pulmonary vessel and reducing the size of that right ventricle and all that kind of stuff. And throughout the 70s, procedures became better. And of course, when, as I already alluded to, once we had the echocardiogram where we could ultrasound and look at the heart ahead of time, we didn't have to guess about what we were getting into. We could, you know, non-invasively know exactly what the structure of the heart was, Mm -hmm. which was obviously a big, a big advantage. And we can do that in utero, right? Yeah. We can see that in utero. Mm -hmm. While while, while while a patient is still pregnant, we can look in at the developing fetus and look for heart defects. Sure, yeah. Uh, So now we do surgery. Uh, We don't typically do that shunt that I described, the the Blaylock Tossig shunt, Tossig Blaylock shunt. I forget which direction Mm. it's in. Anyway, the shunt that's named for them. We don't typically do that. You can still do procedures like that. Shunts sometimes are still done if in certain patients where the defect is so severe that you kind of have to do it stepwise, you need to do something immediately sure. to help get oxygen into the blood and stabilize the patient. And then down the road, you'll do the complete fixing of it, the complete corrective surgery. Mm-hmm. But most people now end up sooner or later getting the complete corrective surgery, usually within the first year of life. Um, there are patients as most as recently as the 90s who got it later than that, but Mm. usually within the first year of life. And like I said, it could be one surgery. It could be a series of surgeries, depending on exactly what type of, you know, the defect isn't exactly uniform in every single person. It's a little different. Um, Untreated. Tetralogy of Fallot used to have a 35% 35 mortality rate in the first year of life and 50% mortality rate in the first three years of life. And as I already mentioned, most people were not living out of their teens. The, in the majority of people. Now, early mortality is less than 5%. People can live long, healthy lives. Uh, they, they do need monitoring, and sometimes other complications down the road can occur, but a lot of patients have the surgery, have, you know, everything corrected and never have problems from it. As an example, Sean White, the snowboarder, had America's, tetralogy of flow repaired. America's favorite only snowboarder. <laughs> It's it's really fascinating. I read the I read the paper by Helen Tossig where she was kind of describing like well one of many. I mean, obviously they wrote about this a lot. You know, if you develop this procedure, you're gonna write about it a lot. But in one of her kind of 
uh, going back and um, thinking about the whole her whole course of everything, how she started there and working at the cardiology clinic and and figuring out the surgery and everything. And she was talking about that they went back to see like how many of their patients down the road, how long did they live? Did they have other problems? But also, did they get a job? Did they get to finish school? Did they get married? Did they have kids? And talking about the like 300 and some children that resulted from all these lives that were able to be lived, you know, as a result. And it was, I mean, it's amazing to read about because they just kind of said, hey, I think this will work and tried it out and it did. Um, she also mentioned specifically at the, towards the end of the paper, she says, to the best of my knowledge, no patient was ever refused because he did, because he could not pay. Further, the hospital established the policy that no, quote unquote, cyanotic patient. So somebody comes in blue, no cyanotic patient who arrived at the doors of the hospital seeking help should leave without seeing me. Um, so you were never turned away and mm-hmm. it didn't matter if you could pay. And uh, she also said this study indicates that a handicap in childhood does not preclude success in adult life. On the contrary, a handicap may act as a stimulus to do one's best, which I thought was really, really inspiring way to look Sorry. at it. Well, I'm glad that we got uh, that's that was harrowing. I would describe that as harrowing. <laughs> <laughs> that was harrowing. I would say that was harrowing. It was very it was very daunting and a little upsetting at the beginning. And then things got better towards the end. So thank you. And that's great storytelling. And history apparently, <laughs> and very, so rarely works in that fashion. I, so it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Thank, thank these brilliant physicians who came up with it. And especially, it's nice to hear a story like this set in the time period where uh, so many uh, female physicians play a role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big, a big role. And you know, it. The amazing thing is, this isn't something that has to devastate families anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to because we can fix it. And. I don't understand a world that would deny anybody this life-saving procedure, no matter what the cost ever. Folks, thank you so much for listening to our show. We hope you have uh, enjoyed it. If you did, please uh, uh, leave us a rating or review on iTunes or, you know, just tweet about the show. Say, hey, um, listen to the show. You know that thing you heard about on Jimmy Fallon? Uh, Jimmy, not Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel? So yeah. Why do we have two Jimmys? <laughs> <laughs> on Jimmy Kimmel, here's more information about it. It's got a fascinating history. Um, uh, and uh, and say the name of our show, Sawbones. Sawbones. The show. And then my name. <laughs> and then Sydney's name yeah. after it. Uh, <laughs> you can just leave mine off. Justin's the real star. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you to the taxpayers for letting us use their song Medicines as the intro and outro on our program. Uh, thank you to the Maximum Fun Network for having us as part of their extended podcasting family. And uh, folks, that is going to do it for us. Actually, no, wait, you know what? We have a P.O. Box where people send us stuff sometimes. P.O. Box 54, Huntington, West Virginia, 25706. And uh, I wanted to say thank you so much to Christina for the lovely book that is currently sitting on our coffee table. Oh, that's a great book. And Cecil sent us a scarf. Uh, that they made and Cecil knitted us some snakes like yes. in our logo they're, they're awesome they're adorable and Charlie loved the scarf um, and uh, that is going to do it for us folks so until next week my name is Justin McElroy I'm Sydney McElroy and as always don't drill a hole in your head
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.